Well, I'm on holiday in Thailand. I'm lying in a large, comfortable bed in a fancy resort in Phuket, and it's spectacular weather, and there's an infinity pool overlooking an idyllic beach with palm trees on it, and the glistening blue Andaman Sea stretching as far as the eye can see before me. I hope that made you feel some combination of jealousy and uh, also a wistful yearning to get back to travel. I'm taking time out of my holiday uh, for the provision of some wonderful podcasting material, as you can tell. Uh, I pre-recorded this episode, so all I need to do now is talk to you here about an insightful, uh, about I guess the insights that I've gotten from travelling to Thailand and how they pertain to COVID. This is a sort of a microcosm of what is wrong with the bureaucratic, well, I suppose right and wrong with the bureaucratic approach to uh, the coronavirus um, at this late stage in the game. It doesn't feel like a late stage in the game in Thailand. They're currently experiencing their biggest surge ever, which is nothing like the kinds of surges that we saw in the United States or even in Australia over the southern summer uh, when Omicron was going crazy and everything was open. Uh, as a proportion of the population, I think they're getting about 25,000 new cases a day, but they've got 65 plus million people. And, you know, New South Wales, the state that I live in in Australia, has 7 million people, maybe eight, um, and was getting almost 100,000 cases a day. So they're, they're one-tenth the, uh, the case load of New South Wales at its worst. Um, but nonetheless, they're taking it very seriously and masks everywhere, including outside, technically, theoretically, on the beach, not honoured, thankfully. Such madness. Uh, gloves. They love the gloves. What's the, what's the glove thing about? You go to the buffet and, uh, you know, you try to pick something up without a glove. Not a piece of food. I mean, a, a tong or a spoon, a ladle. And uh, some uh, little helper comes scurrying up. Sawatika! And hands you a glove which they've then touched and I've now touched and so I put the glove on and the glove is covered in whatever our hands were covered in and then the glove touches exactly the same things that my hands otherwise would have touched. Uh, not sure, not sure of the point of that. Unless I'm going around coughing into my hand and blowing my nose into my hand and then immediately touching things and the glove comes on in between the cough and then I never cough into the glove... I, then I suppose it has utility. It doesn't seem like a good cost-benefit trade-off to me, but nonetheless. This whole thing it seems a little surreal to me. I mean, COVID, the whole pandemic, the whole coronavirus is somewhat academic at the moment because, I, as many of you know, I got COVID within the past six weeks. I'm triple vaccinated. I got a PCR test on arrival in Thailand. So I'm both the least dangerous and least endangered person I could be, version of me that I could possibly be. Um, so all the rules and the and my obedience to them is purely a sort of formality. It's just me being nice and going along with the flow. Uh, I don't think there could be a less dangerous person at this point uh, than I am right now. So the idea of putting masks on my kids so that they can play in the in the kids' club seems peculiar, especially when they've just tested negative the day before. But, hey, I'll roll with it. What's interesting, though, that I'm reluctant to roll with 
is Thailand's peculiar way of testing you when you arrive. And it, I think you'll be interested in hearing about it just as evidence of how topsy-turvy things can get when countries back themselves into uh, bureaucratic corners of their own making. So last year, Thailand created this experiment called the Phuket Sandbox. Phuket is their most popular tourist destination. It's an island, so it's easy to contain. They said, why don't we, try, use a, why don't we do a sandbox program in Phuket? People will be able to get a negative test. Vaccinated people will be able to get a negative test in their home country, come in, get a test on arrival, stay in a COVID, what they call an SHA or SHA plus accredited property and only go with tour guides who are approved by the government to be COVID safe and only use airport transfers that are COVID safe. So we create a kind of a quarantine on this island uh, and for the first seven days, for the first week, you, you can change hotels and you can go and do things, but only within this ecosystem of COVID approved vendors, essentially. You can't just start going backpacking through the hills and staying in little villages and spreading your COVID everywhere. Then uh, they realised that maybe that was a little harsh because you also had to get a second test on day uh, six, I think it was, and then on day eight you were able to, to be released and travel around the rest of Thailand, which seemed onerous. So they introduced a parallel alternative system in the rest of Thailand called test and go, which meant that upon arrival... You would be tested at the either at the airport or you would be uh, taken in a government-approved vehicle to a hospital to be tested and then taken in the government-approved vehicle to your hotel, which again had to be one of these registered hotels, and you would have to stay in your room until the test results came back. It could be up to 24 hours, but they were, they're fairly efficient, so it was six hours, eight hours, something like that. Uh, and then you're allowed to go, and then on day five, you have to do a, um, a negative antigen test, and then you have to upload that to an app. Uh, and, you know, being a, a developing Asian country, everything is more bureaucratic than it needs to be, so, of course, there are forms that you need to fill out at every step of the way, and there's a contact tracing app that you're supposed to have downloaded by the time you arrive, but when you arrive, everyone seems rather confused about whether it's this app or whether it's actually another app that's not a COVID tracing app but is, in fact, a COVID information app that the Thai king wants everyone to have downloaded. So, you know, it, when everyone gets confused and it gets too much, they just hand you another form to fill out in triplicate and ask you to sign in 17 different places and then they whisk you away to somewhere else. Uh, but all that being said, this new test and go program essentially replaced the sandbox program for visitors from a, a list of safe countries, which is basically most, most Western countries. But uh, and then they decided, to, and, and then they decided it was a little bit of overkill to have to require people to be getting their PCR test in their home countries before they uh, depart, you know, th within three days of departure and then also testing them on arrival uh, into Thailand. Uh, but, uh, oh, and I should add that what happens if you test positive to coronavirus after arriving in Thailand is not simply that you have to stay in your hotel room until you're no longer infectious. You, they still have a mandatory quarantine program. So you'll be physically taken by guards of the state, I believe, to what they call a hospital, a COVID hospital, but, I mean, if you're not even sick and, sh and symptomatic, they still take you there, so it's not really a hospital, it's a mandatory quarantine facility, essentially, that may be a wing of a hospital, and you're locked up for two weeks, including all of the co close contacts who you're travelling with. Um, so that's, that's rough. You don't want to arrive in Thailand and test positive on that first day. Uh, I've, tried, uh, I've tried the food in economy class on Thai airways, and I imagine the food in a Thai hospital COVID ward 
uh, may not even be that good. And that, let me tell you, my friends, is a very, very low bar. Uh, so they decided this might be overkill, testing before you get on the plane and then testing you as soon as you get off the plane. But I think, I think they figured that it would be a loss of face to deconstruct the entire test and go apparatus. And so what they've done now, as of the 1st of April, is they've abolished the requirement for a pre-departure test, but not the requirement for a test on arrival. So you get on the plane without having been tested. They let you come all the way to Thailand, interact with all of the people at the airport, interact with all of the people in transit to your hotel and at the hotel, then test positive, and then then you're their problem to take care of in quarantine for two weeks with all of the people you were traveling with. Wouldn't it be simpler just not to have the test on arrival and catch the COVID positive person before they got on the plane in their home country? Uh, this, this to me seems very bizarre. And it was rendered even more threatening by the fact that when I, that I got food poisoning in the lounge at Sydney Airport what I now think is food poisoning, because while I was on the plane, I started getting enormous fatigue and stomach cramps and uh, what felt like a fever, kind of shivering, cold sweats. Uh, it's great, by the way, uh, enduring this while you've got two four-year-olds to look after on a plane. Uh, my partner, Sean, was in business class because uh, I was being nice to him. Uh, well, not that nice. I'm going to go in business on the way back. This is the way we try to get a little bit of, uh, a little bit of fancy uh, without breaking the breaking the bank or using too many frequent flyer miles, um, so I'm there uh, in economy class for nine hours uh, with the kids, uh, shivering and uh, shaking and uh, swooning in and out of consciousness, consciousness like some 1950s uh, femme fatale in a movie uh, who just can't handle the the heat or the cold or whatever it might be. And uh, and when we get to the, to the hotel in in Phuket, I I, I start to taste in my mouth, a very recognisable metallic taste, like I've been sucking on a rusty nail, someone once put it. That kind of unmistakable taste of having a cold where you sort of, you can't taste things quite as well as you normally would. Tastes a little bit like you've, you've sucked on a coin or something. I definitely had that when I got COVID. So I had that, I had a temperature, I had cold sweats, stomach cramps, and fatigue. And I thought, holy shit, <laughs> this test is going to come back positive and my whole family is going to end up in a Thai quarantine isolation facility for the next two weeks. And I mustered my best zen and I thought, que sera, sera, baby. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And I can't tell you the relief when I woke up at 4 a.m. There's a four-hour time difference from Sydney, so that was 8 a.m. in Sydney. When I woke up at 4 a.m. naturally and I checked my email and I had, uh, I had four emails from the Thai health department saying that coronavirus was not detected in our systems. Nonetheless, seems like a perverse, stressful and expensive and convoluted and complicated way of doing things to try to catch every single individual who's arriving in the country and then funnel them into this system instead of testing them before they get on the plane. But hey, who am I to tell the King of Thailand how to run his country? I love you, sir. 
and uh, all that you stand for. If you're not aware, disrespecting the king in Thailand is a, a crime, so I'm definitely not doing that. No, sir. No, sir, Bob. All respect your highness, your royal, your very royal uh, and beloved highness. <clears throat> Anywho, I suspect that such strange and peculiar and convoluted systems of governance uh, would uh, be less likely to arise and less likely to endure if someone within the echelons of power was willing to say, maybe instead of just retaining through inertia the system that we devised at one point in the pandemic, we should be nimble enough to course correct and uh, even, if it, uh, even if it costs us a little bit of face, even if it doesn't feel quite right, uh, m- even if it seems like we've wasted a lot of resources on a misbegotten white elephant venture, perhaps uh, we should do things a little bit differently. But that would require someone willing to buck the trend. That would require someone willing to stand up for having conversations that are awkward, that might get them fired, that might make other people laugh at them, conversations that are, in a word, uncomfortable. Today on the show, when the Ukraine crisis first happened and Putin invaded and I was shocked. I hit up some of my European friends to say, who should I speak to about what the hell is going on? Who is the best? Who is the most knowledgeable about international affairs and especially how Europe can and should respond to this? Because I've always believed and still believe that really ultimately the solution here, uh, the way to either avoid or blunder into global calamity is going to come from Europe, from European solidarity. That's, uh, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road uh, in terms of Ukraine, Russia, and the West. And several people said you must speak to Natalie Tocci. Uh, she's an Italian political scientist. She studied at University College in Oxford. She got her PhD in international relations at the London School of Economics. Um, and she went on to work in Brussels, um, where the EU is headquartered, at the Centre for European Policy Studies. And she was a research fellow on EU relations. So very, very learned about the ins and outs of the way that the European Union knits itself together uh, and trades its, and the trade-offs that are necessary to keep those coalitions alive and to keep a certain steadfastness and comity between members. And she's very knowledgeable and was very active during the periods that have stressed the EU from the financial crisis and the euro crisis and on into Brexit. Um, In 2014, she ceased being an academic and became an advisor in the Italian government in the in the foreign ministry, the equivalent of the State Department. Um, And she advised on sort of top foreign policy issues. uh, When she was working for the EU's foreign policy chief as well, basically, you know, bouncing around all of these very high powered positions in Brussels uh, at the EU and in Italy in the Italian government. Uh, she now has, she has a column uh, for Politico. She has all kinds of awards on European foreign policy. She's an honorary professor and uh, she really gets it, uh, specifically the stakes that currently exist for Europe and for the West, let alone for Russia and of course for Ukraine. 
Um, I hope you enjoy her insights. Uh, this is one of those conversations where I don't really need to do terribly much because she knows so much. The one and only Natalie Tocci. Coffee and a juice. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> and it's raining. <laughs> <laughs> oh, tell me about the rain. It is. Uh, it's been incredible here in Australia. I don't know if it's made the news over there, but there are huge floods. So. Yeah, no, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really, really nasty. After we had huge bushfires and now the floods. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah well, one can only expect this to continue, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. I know. That's what everyone feels like. Is this a new normal now? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's just uh, let's get straight into it. Um, I'm mm -hmm. interested in your thoughts about, uh, let's start with worst case scenarios. Uh, what, I keep my, I find myself always thinking, what if, what if Putin wins and, and what does that look like? Hmm. Well... I can't, to be honest with you, I can't actually see Putin winning, um, which does not mean that I don't see catastrophic scenarios. In fact, in, in some respects, I see catastrophic scenarios almost as a result of, uh, of that, you know, of him being defeated. And, and I think this can go in, in two different um, and very dramatic directions. I mean, Scenario one, um, defeat against Ukraine. Uh, and what I mean by defeat against Ukraine is, in a sense, what we are already seeing, uh, meaning the goal of this invasion uh, was, in a sense, proving that Ukraine does not exist. Uh, it is not a nation. Uh, it would be over and done with in a few days. Well, in that respect, you know, beyond what, you know, will happen I think in the sort of days and weeks ahead, I think we can already say it's a political defeat uh, for, for Putin. And so then the question is, you know, what does that political defeat imply? And I think sort of, you know, scenario number one, well, political defeat against Ukraine for someone who obviously thinks of himself as being Vladimir the Great, you know, um, is pretty humiliating. And if you really do have to lose a war, well, you know, for the great Russian empire, it's more dignified to lose a war against the West. And so, you know, catastrophic scenario number one is one in which uh, Putin has an interest. And I think in some respects, we've already been seeing signals of this, of um, transforming this and articulating this as not a war between Russia and Ukraine, but a war between Russia and the West, and of course, the way in which this can spill into, um, you know, various catastrophic scenarios, of course, you know, the, the nuclear one being um, the most horrific is something that, you know, you one can, you know, sort of, in a sense, imagine. And then catastrophic scenario number two, again, as a product of that defeat, is one in which um, you know, it may not, not happen today or tomorrow, um, but, you know, I think that this will accelerate political change within Russia. And I fear that that political um, change is not one that will see the likes of Alexei Navalny coming to power, um, but uh, internal turmoil 
um, that could, you know, either settle into something uh, or it could not settle into something. I mean, you know, it could, I think, go all the way as far as a sort of collapse of the Russian state. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't mean to say that either of those two scenarios is necessarily where we're headed, but I think that it would be wrong for us to conclude that um, from the defeat of Putin, uh, necessarily something great is going to arise. Um, because, yeah, I mean, I fear that that is not necessarily likely. Let's take the first one, um, the nuclear consideration. I must say, I, Natalie, I, I, ha- I hear a lot about that and I can't quite game it out in my head. I can't quite see how that comes to pass when, like, explain it to me. So Putin has the arsenal that he has, the conventional arsenal that he has. We've seen what he's willing to do in Chechnya. He could turn Kiev into Grozny. He could use chemical weapons. He could use biological weapons. He could say, if you're going to take me down, then every Ukrainian's going to die with me. But at what point does it become a rational calculus for him to pull out a nuke? I mean, I agree that if we use our rationality, it never would. Uh, But then again, our rationality would have never sort of really conceived this kind of of war. Um, And so, you know, I think it would only really be um, a sort of last resort of ultimate desperation um, in which, you know, let us imagine that he does something um, biological and that, or or chemical, and that is not, quote-unquote, sufficient to terrorise the population enough for Ukrainians to simply stay put and say, okay, you know, we will accept um, the Russian conquerors. Um, So, you know, you can imagine an escalatory dynamic where nothing works, um, and, you know, nothing works to achieve what the original objective of this invasion was, which was essentially the submission of of Ukraine. And so I think it's only in that kind of logic that you can imagine something as extreme as a a tactical nuclear attack. Now, do I think that it's likely? No, I don't think that that is likely. I think it's far more likely um, that, you know, he will try to do other things, certainly other things before. But I think it would be, and I think that the reason why um, he is uh, sort of, threatening or raising uh, the the nuclear spectre is essentially more to scare us rather than anything else. Mm. Um, So I don't think it's likely. But then again, I don't think that um, we should dismiss it either, uh, simply because, you know, normally dictators, you need to kind of listen carefully to what they say and the words they use, you know, because they often end up actually doing what they say. (laughs) And this Mm. is the most dramatic thing of all. So I just think that we should be um, conscious of the fact that, you know, irrational as it may look like, the rationality that we're talking about is not necessarily one that that belongs to us, which does not, I I don't mean to say that that Putin is irrational. I think that the rationality that drives him simply stems from a very different idea and and kind of value base and ideology from the one that we think conceivable, essentially. Do you think that he has a post-war game plan, Natalie? Because the other component of the nuclear option that I don't quite understand is, uh, I mean, suppose in a best case scenario for Putin, he manages to achieve a military victory in Ukraine and somehow manages to 
to overwhelm their military in spite of all the aid that they're getting from the West. And he he gets a stranglehold on all of Ukraine's territory. Now he has to occupy a country. He has to assume that he's that either most Ukrainians are going to go along with that or he's going to be able to so brutalize them into submission, which largely he did in to, to Georgians, that they will have lost the will to fight or the will to, to live. Uh, if you have a, if you detonate a nuke in that territory, what are you, is he expecting his Russian civil servants to be administering a nuclear wasteland? I mean, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, um, if he were to come to something like this, it would be um, really the product of an extreme calculus, which rather than um, stemming from, you know, what am I going to do the day after, stems from a how am I going to avoid my own demise, which, of course, when we talk about dictators, a dictator's demise essentially means death. Um, so I think it would really be a, a kind of a, a, a last desperate act, if you like, and, right. and therefore not one which is really kind of driven by, um, a, a, you know, sort of what am I going to do the day after, but how am right. I going to survive today? Maybe even something on the way out the door. I mean, the only conceivable scenario, as I hear you talk, that I could imagine it happening is if he's literally withdrawing and it's it's like... Well, fuck you guys. Exactly. Uh, you're not going to have a country <laughs> exactly. anymore. Yeah. Precisely. Okay, so let's go to the second uh, horrendous uh, scenario that you you pointed to, although less horrendous potentially, uh, uh, the sort of collapse of the Soviet state, the end of Putin's reign, the replacement of the current government with something else, potentially a revolution. How do we get from here to there? What happens in between? Well, yeah, that's the real, I mean, that's that's the million dollar question. I mean, I don't know Russia enough to to kind of think through how the, this could play out. I guess my my main point here is that um, I, I don't really see, to be honest with you, a revolution. You know, I don't see um, public opinion being up in arms, um, demanding kind of revolutionary change. If by revolutionary change, we mean some sort of uh, democratic uh, change. Um, Obviously, there is, I think, a very deep discomfort amongst, um, you know, certain segments of the population. But essentially, we're talking about, uh, numerically at least, uh, um, small numbers. So I don't think that I can't quite picture that. I can't quite picture a revolutionary change. What I can picture, though, is a scenario whereby almost um, regardless what happens, and what I mean by regardless what happens is even if uh, one gets to some sort of ceasefire, unless it's a ceasefire that really sees Russia withdrawing completely, um, which I think is unlikely, Um, that kind of scenario is one which still, I think, sees sanctions being kept. Um, I think that, in a sense, we've already gone beyond the point of of no return in many respects uh, with with Putin and uh, until Putin remains in power. So here you have a situation whereby, you know, even in the quote-unquote uh, non-catastrophic scenarios in which some sort of 
low-level warfare continues, sanctions continue, and therefore the sort of pain that is being inflicted, um, economic pain on on Russia, uh, continues. Now, surely that is going to accelerate um, some sort of change within within the Russian state. Uh, Now, it is not obviously um, a change that... I, you know, one can imagine being, quote unquote, limited to the top, largely because the top that we're talking about, you know, with the kind of verticalization of power that we've seen um, as, in a sense, a sort of autocratic regime has gradually morphed into a dictatorial one. So I don't think that it's simply a question of, you know, the inner circle, you know, someone from the inner circle replacing him. Um because, in a sense, you know, the the the, the pyramid has become, uh, you know, something far more far more vertical. You could imagine the repercussions, um, sort of, you know, sh- shaking all the way down, and and how far down uh, that that means, I have no idea. But you know, you do kind of look at Russia, and you know, this is a country which has seen state collapse, you know, a couple of times in you know not that many decades, right? Uh, and there aren't that many states that have collapsed. I mean, literally collapsed uh, twice in you know um, a little over a, a century. Uh, and so you just you know, you, you you look at it and you think, you know, is this really that inconceivable in a situation whereby there has been an utter failure of ultimately the ideology that drove this invasion? I mean, this is not simply some sort of, you know, tactical mistakes. Um, you know, the reason why Russia has not achieved what it planned to achieve is that the ultimate idea that was behind it, which was basically... Ukraine does not exist. And the flip side of that argument is, uh, you know, an idea of what Russia itself is. Well, if that idea of what Russia itself is, uh, meaning, uh, you know, a Russia that um, responds to a a very revanchist uh, idea of actually what sovereignty means, uh, which is essentially some sort of, you know, ethno-linguistic understanding of sovereignty, well, if Ukraine proves that that is wrong, and but and yet if you know the ideology driving this was some sort of idea of you know Russia is a fragmented state which just needs to be united, well, if that unity has not been achieved, what does this say about Russia itself? Mm. Uh, and, and that is why you know the minute in which that idea proves to be not only a military failure but a political failure you can't quite see how the the system itself can somehow simply survive by, you know, changing one leader by another and somehow settling um, into a new great steady state because the ideology underpinning it has been proved to be a failure. Yeah, but the uh, the ideologues never, never concede that point, do they? I mean, throughout history, people who have self-aggrandizing visions of their own historical victoriousness uh when proven wrong in by the harsh light of reality 
uh, tend to say that it was the implementation that it was wrong. I mean, look at the way that communists endlessly rationalized communism long after so many communist regimes had turned tyrannical. It was always just that it was implemented incorrectly. I mean, even at the end of the Second World War, you know, a, a committed Nazi still thought that Nazism was a great idea. It just hadn't been done quite right. And it was they were stabbed in the back and so on. So I can also equally imagine retaining a vision of Russian greatness, of Russian destiny towards, uh, you know, this this vast ethno-Russian empire. And in this particular case, it was the dastardly, it was, you know, Hillary Clinton and uh, the, and George right. Soros and the and Angela Merkel who, who thwarted uh, Russia yet again. Yeah, uh, and, and the away. time has simply not come yet, you know. Yeah, um, exactly. I think yeah. that's right. You know, I think, you know, and that's why I'm saying, you know, you know sort of these are the two catastrophic scenarios right. that we could actually imagine which does not necessarily mean that it will end up in in, in one of them yeah so uh, let's let's move to let, let's move to how we avoid those and to your field of expertise which is european policy because that's probably where the solution to all of this lies ultimately is in european cohesion and steadfastness uh take us to let's let's flip to sort of best case scenarios out of a very bad bunch and what those look like and how we get there well, you know, I think that as far as, as, as Europe is concerned, well, firstly, I think it's important to highlight how, um, firstly, through the pandemic, but especially now with this war, in a sense, um, Europe and, and the European Union has, has really found its mojo again. Um, you know, we had essentially moved from one existential crisis, you know, jump from one existential crisis to the next, you know, from, um, you know, the Eurozone crisis, migration crisis, Brexit, etc. You know, it really looked like we were on verge of collapse, you know, for, what, 15 years. And by the way, that sense of being on the verge of collapse, I think, is really something that imbued um, the, the, this Russian ideology of, of basically saying, you know, sort of, the kind of weak uh, liberal um, West, you know, and especially the weak liberal Europe that tries to uh, imagine a, a different, because by definition, the European Union um, could never be a nationalist project. I mean, it would, you know, it was kind of constructed uh, to prove that, that that kind of idea is, is, is a failed idea. Um, so, you know, I think, the the crises that Europe went through were obviously existential on the one hand for the European Union, but they were also so dangerous because they really bolstered the kind of idea and ideology that drove Putin to do what what he did. Anyway, you know, we kind of move then on to you know the pandemic. We find you know we sort of find refine that magic little word which is really at the heart of European integration, which is solidarity. And then we really find it again uh, with this war. You know, I think it's really quite incredible how over the course of, you know, these these first weeks, um, you know, not only are we now, um, you know, on migration and refugee issues, uh, from this being a highly divisive issue, here we are, um, you know, sort of, implementing a temporary protection mechanism whereby Ukrainian refugees can not only come but move freely across 
the union. We are considering what kind of economic response, you know, much like over the course of the pandemic, we thought of Next Generation EU as essentially a kind of form of debt mutualization uh, in order to emerge from the pandemic itself. We're now thinking about something likewise uh, to recover from what will ultimately be another recession, let's face it. Uh, we're talking about energy independence. We're talking about uh, a defense union and really stepping up in terms of uh, security and defense. So basically, you see, and, and I think actually this comes, gets us closer to Ukraine itself, we have revived the very idea of enlargement. You know, enlargement was dead in the water, essentially. Um, and, and, and through Ukraine, we have made this fundamental idea uh, live once again. So what kind of, you know, solution could this lead to? Well, it will take time, um, but you can imagine uh, a uh, solution whereby, yes, you know, Ukraine is not going to become a member of uh, NATO. In a sense, it was never really going to, to be honest with you. Um, and yet it will be a member of the European Union. Um, the non-membership of NATO means that this will need to be coupled with uh, strong security guarantees, uh, including from European countries, of course, also uh, the United States, but European countries, you know, the ones that are being mentioned, France, Germany, uh, Italy, as well as the United Kingdom. And I think, you know, again, as a side note, um, I think this war has also demonstrated to be the first instance of EU-UK uh, cooperation post-Brexit. You know, oh. this has been a very poisonous relationship up until now, and here we are in full sync with the United Kingdom. Um, so I think this is another important piece in, in the sense of, of, of this puzzle. Um, and, and so, you know, I think the, the, the sticky point in all of this is, is the territorial one. Uh, and ultimately, the territorial one um, can only, I mean, given that one will necessarily need to be wed to the idea of Ukraine's territorial uh, integrity, uh, I think the territorial piece of this equation uh, is going to, in a sense, be determined by what happens on, on the battlefield, which is why it is so important to actually support Ukraine's uh, defense uh, militarily. Because, of course, you know, the, the, the territory that Russia occupies is very unlikely to de-occupy uh, anytime soon. I mean, you know, we have seen this uh, happen not only in Ukraine, but uh, across Eastern Europe and the Caucasus. Right. And, and Natalie, when you say the territorial question is the crucial one, do you mean that the question of whether or not Ukraine can revert to the borders that it had before the invasion or before the Crimean invasion is critical or simply that Ukraine has to have some uh, territorial component? Because I can't see, I think it's unlikely for us to expect a world in which Crimea and Donbass end up in Ukraine. Well, I think Crimea, uh, you're right. Uh, I think Donbass, it really depends what we mean by Donbass. Um, you know, if we mean by Donbass, um, the territories held uh, by Russia before the 24th of February, I would tend to agree with you. I think yeah. anything beyond that uh, starts getting far more problematic. Um, you know, so, you know, so, you know, so I really think it's, yeah, I mean, I mm. really think it, it depend, depends where we draw that line. Right, right. Um, 
it's very easy when we're all shocked and horrified by the audacity of the invasion to find unanimity. I mean, I suppose it's not, you know, we should still be, we should still applaud all of the leaders who've been able to be as steadfast as they have and impose the sanctions that they have and supply and speak with one voice on the military questions as they have. My concern is that if the, if weeks turn into months, turn into potentially years, and there's some sort of stalemate or quagmire and peace talks recur and then fail and recur and then fail and Russia insists on sanctions being lifted and the West doesn't do it, that at some point certain members of the coalition start to lose faith, start to think it's not worth the effort, and you see a fracturing. And I presume that Putin Putin's most ardent dream is to find those wedges in Western Europe in particular and cleave off a few countries. Um, is that likely? If so, which countries would they be? How do we avoid it? Um, well, I think, yes, you're right. Uh, and, and in a sense, you know, one of the reasons why this invasion in the way in which it has taken place has been so surprising is precisely because you know, it doesn't respond to that kind of logic. You know, had Putin done something more, um, you know, to use the kind of unfortunate expression that President Biden used before the invasion, a limited uh, incursion, you know, had that happened, well, then the division would have already emerged oh, yeah. in a very kind of, you know, clear and blatant way. So, and this was why so many of us actually thought that he would do something, quote unquote, limited, uh, because that was, you know, the easiest route to sow division, which is exactly what happened uh, in Georgia, in Ukraine itself in 2014, uh, etc. So, you know, that hasn't happened. And so the question is, you know, given that something so large scale has taken place, how long can that unity be sustained? And I think the key to the answer is the speed at which um, we manage, and by we I'm here mainly talking about Europeans, because of course that is really where in so many respects, and in particular when it comes to energy, we are tied, uh, you know, we're joined at the hip with Russia. Um, so I think the answer to that question sort of revolves around how quickly can we wean off uh, Russian uh mainly gas. I think oil is, is a slightly different story. Um, and then to the extent that we manage to do it, you know, if we indeed manage by the end of this year uh, to essentially, quote unquote, resolve two thirds of the problem, well, then actually maintaining that unity becomes easier. Uh, because, you know, basically what we end up seeing is a Russia which increasingly looks either like a gi gigantic North Korea or in the, the best of circumstances, the kind of poor uh, small cousin of, of China. Um, now, you know, if that is to happen, meaning, you know, if that interdependences and those dependencies are, are you know, weakened, they're eventually severed, well, then it's easier to maintain a, a sort of resolve when it comes to Russia, because we've got less to lose. How do we do that? Is it, uh, is, I mean, I would love it if uh, there was some plan to hastily replace all Russian gas in Western Europe. Um, but I don't know how logistically you do that quickly enough for him no, to no longer have leverage. 
Well, we may actually uh, end up in the situation very, very quickly uh, in the sense that, um, you know, sort of Putin, uh, I think as, you know, he's, he, he often does, but this often backfires, uh, tried out the ruble threat. So basically saying, you know, you Europeans, well, in fact, you everyone, um, if you want to trade in energy with uh, Russia, you've got to pay in rubles. And, and, and I think the reason why he did it was, on the one hand, to shore up the Russian ruble, which, as we know, has been essentially collapsing over the last few weeks. Uh, and on the other hand, through this move, tried to detour uh, essentially sanctions. Now, we didn't fall into that trap. And we said very clearly, well, no, we were not paid in, in, in rubles. Um, and the long-term contracts, mainly gas contracts that we have with Russia, actually do not foresee those payments to take place in rubles. Um, and so we will not do it. Now, at this point, what does Putin do? I mean, he either backtracks and say, OK, fine, I was joking, which normally he doesn't do. Uh, or he does, as Lavrov himself uh, hinted at, say, well, we will in that case interrupt our supplies uh, to to Russia. So in a sense, if to Europe. they actually, to, sorry, to, to Europe. Mm. So in a sense, if they act on that uh, threat, they, quote unquote, remove the thorny question that we've been um, sort of skirting up until now, which is the embargo question, because they would basically self-embargo, right? Right. So, you know, we and could end up... Natalie, that's, that's not catastrophic to Germany. I mean, I, I guess we're lucky that we're coming into spring and summer and that it's not the middle of winter. But uh, Germany Germany can would be okay if Russia turned off the spigot completely? No, we would not be okay. I mean, Germany would not be okay. Italy would not be okay. Um, but the, you know, an argument that I make here in Italy a lot is, um, you know, you... you you know, one, what, what does okay mean, right? I mean, you know, what's the point? What's the comparison? Uh, what are we comparing not being okay with? And now if we compare not okay with the wonderful world in which we thought that in 2022 we were going to uh, grow at, you know, projections here in Italy, for example, were, uh, you know, 5% GDP growth. Well, obviously, we're not going to be okay next autumn. I mean, you know, the summer's going to be fine, but we're not going to be okay next autumn, where essentially, we're going to have to sort of uh, engage in, uh, you know, rationing of, of, of different sorts. So that's not okay compared to that. But if we compare that not okay with the rationale of these sanctions, and the rationale of these sanctions is, stopping Putin, because if he is not stopped, he will continue. Well, the economic costs, you know, we go back to catastrophic scenarios, you know, the economic costs of Putin not stopping, um, let alone the humanitarian one, but just to focus on the economic costs are even more catastrophic than, you know, the the recession that we could end up in and right. we would end up with. But what, um, I, what I mean by what I mean by could Germany and Italy, would they be okay is, I mean, old people wouldn't be dying frozen no, in their apartments no. because they, the, the apartments weren't heated. It would just be a, it would just be expensive. It would be uh, expensive. It would mean uh, burning uh, coal uh, in a very, you know, sort of as if there's no tomorrow for, you know, a year or so. Um, it and you've would got mean... the coal-fired power plants to do that? 
Yes, yes. It would mean that Germany would not uh, halt uh, its nuclear power plants, as it was expected to do by the end of this year. Um, Italy itself, you know, over the last weeks has been, um, you know, sort of flying around like crazy. You know, our energy company, uh, ENI, is very present in, in, in North Africa and in Africa. Um, and, you know, the contracts that have now been signed uh, with um, Algeria, with Qatar, with uh, Congo, um, with Angola, with Mozambique, mean that the supplies would actually, uh, essentially the supplies would be there. I mean, the question is more a question that has to do with infrastructure. Uh, we would have to uh, essentially buy and build. We cannot build that quickly and therefore buy floating LNG facilities very quickly. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I don't want to suggest that this is not going to be very difficult and and, and painful, um, but we will survive, you know. Mm. Uh, so I don't think that, as I said, you know, I think that when Schultz talks about a recession, he's absolutely right. I guess what I'm saying is that there will probably be a recession anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no, I mean, that, that that's gratifying to me because I wasn't sure if it was even possible to run these countries without Russian gas, but I'm pleased to hear that it could be. I mean, I don't understand why there isn't, uh, you know, essentially an entirely open wallet, just a fire hose of money. I mean, look, I don't understand why after Crimea and Georgia, there wasn't a fire hose of money going to even building giant cables from the bottom of Italy to North Africa and putting lots and lots of solar panels, coating North Africa in solar panels and just having a huge, you know, really forward thinking ways of ensuring Europe's energy that's completely independent, not just of Russia. Well, you know, it's, it's even fuels. worse than that. It's even worse than that, because if you look at the 2014-2022 period, our dependence on Russian gas not only didn't reduce, but it increased. And so the Crazy. question is, why did that happen? And I think there are two explanations for this. Um, there's the sort of historical explanation, which is, and, and this has been there for obviously a long, a long time, and it kind of dates back to, to the Cold War, and basically saying, you know, somehow energy can be shielded from politics. And hey, you know, look at the history of the Cold War itself, uh, where, you know, across the Iron Curtain, uh, you know, energy was being traded between Europe and, and Russia and the Soviet Union at the time. So I think there's that, you know, sort of historical analogy, which of course is totally misplaced today because, you know, what one often forgets is that the Cold War was obviously a Cold War um, for a reason. It was cold. Uh, and it was cold also because the hot war, meaning the Second World War, was, um, you know, the Soviet Union and uh, European um, uh, countries, meaning, you know, countries that, that won the war, um, were fighting on the same side. And, and this is a very different scenario. So in a sense, you know, we're no longer in a post-war era, we're in a pre-war era. So it's a totally different uh, uh, sort of ball game. Uh, so, but, but that Cold War analogy, I think, informed a lot of the optimism when it comes right. to Russia, despite the fact that there was a very clearly a political deterioration in the relationship. And then the second reason uh, why I think we were kind of, um, yeah, sort of, you know, why, why this massive miscalculation came about was that between 2014 and, you know, essentially October of last year, energy prices were very, very low. 
Um, the first drop in prices came in 2014, actually. Um, and, and I think in, in, in times of low prices, an interdependent energy relationship like the one between the EU and Russia means that leverage is on the buyer's side. It's only when prices are high that leverage kind of tilts towards the seller's side. But we somehow assumed that here we were transitioning away from fossil fuels and therefore the assumption was that actually this meant that fossil fuel prices uh, would be almost permanently low. Uh, and so, you know, we could afford, you know, we, we had leverage over Russia. It was not the other way around. And I think it was those two uh, assumptions, one which is kind of, you know, political and historical and the other which is more recent uh, and um, and really driven by economics, which led to this massive miscalculation and now is scrambling to make up for it. Natalie, a lot of people in the Anglophone world, at least, who think of themselves as very uh, independent thinkers who question conventional narratives uh, and who are uh, sceptical of being misled by propaganda, uh, will hear you say that if Putin doesn't stop in Ukraine, he won't stop. And they roll their eyes and say, that sounds like Pentagon uh, waffle. Uh, you know, he has a particular fixation on Ukraine. Ukraine has a particular fixation, has a particular relationship historically with Russia. It was part of the Soviet Union. Kiev has this long tradition and association. I mean, it's where the Russian Orthodox Church started. You know, Russia, Ukraine is Putin's bag, and that's ultimately what he wants. And there's it's scaremongering to think that he would come after NATO just because he got Ukraine. What do you say to that? Well, I would say that, um, okay, now let me be clear. I don't think that if Russia um, is not stopped in Ukraine, uh, the following day uh, tanks would be rolling into the Baltics. Um, I, 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 I don't see that as being, in a sense, the sort of next step. At the same time, what I do actually see is Russia is not stopped uh, in Ukraine um, and uh, say, for example, Odessa falls in whatever, a few weeks, a few months, who knows, right, because he is not stopped. Um, can we, are we really confident that something would not happen in Moldova? Well, I'm certainly not. Um, so I think, you know, Moldova would be the, 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 the next most likely thing. And I think it's totally, totally kind of imaginable how this would happen if Odessa were to fall. And if he's not stopped in Moldova, what would make him stop there? So I think that there is a scenario which actually in, in different ways, whether it's Moldova, whether it's again, you know, actually Putin is facing strong resistance. You know, we go back to this, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of conflict spilling beyond Ukraine, and he has an interest actually in, in sort of drawing NATO into the fight. Can we really imagine that there isn't some sort of attack uh, on an arms depot in Poland? Um, and obviously that would <laughs> trigger a, a NATO response. So as I said, you know, I don't think that any of these scenarios is, is necessarily likely. But I mean, you know, you, you can imagine uh, different routes through which uh, this war could in different ways spill beyond Ukraine, even if you don't take seriously um, the hypothesis that this entails marching into the Baltics tomorrow morning. 
Right. I mean, okay, Moldova, yes, but you know, most people will will chuckle a little bit when they hear about the critical importance of the autonomy of Moldova. Uh, once you once you get Moldova, there aren't that. I mean, you can try for Romania, I guess. That's that's good luck uh, getting across. Uh, that's a large, another geographically large country, but fairly soon you do hit NATO and the EU, and the, uh, you know, that's not to say that Moldova doesn't have a, a right to self determination. Uh, but I don't think that that's what is keeping the hawks up at night. Okay, but then you kind of look at the flip side of that argument. Uh, and, if, and, and if what one is saying is um, Russia will uh, not stop, Putin will not stop uh, up until he hits uh, NATO's borders, uh, then the logic of having stopped NATO enlargement, um, it, it kind of crumbles because if basically what we're saying is, you know, he will go as far as he can go and basically gobble everything up, up until NATO, you know, up until NATO borders. Uh, well, then the strategic mistake was that of stopping NATO enlargement. Right. But I mean, that that the uncomfortable part of this conversation is the is the fact that there is a school of thought in the West. There is a, a Kissinger style realpolitik that you hear uh you know, John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt and people who are very, who regard themselves as very hard-nosed uh, realists, they they would say the West has always wanted its sphere of influence and the, you know, the Soviet Union wanted its sphere of influence and that hasn't changed just because the Soviet Union ceased to exist. Uh, America has historically been extremely sensitive about, uh, you know, nukes being stationed in Cuba, or it's basically controlled the entire Western Hemisphere with the Monroe Doctrine. It asserted its uh, its uh, authority over the Western Hemisphere. And it might not be nice for Ukrainians, and it might not be nice for Moldovans, but ultimately, it's hypocritical of us to say that Russia doesn't have essentially a claim to that to, to its sphere. So we get NATO, and it gets everything non not NATO. Well, I, I think what's really problematic... Okay, so let me put it this way. Um, I have actually been, um, you know, up until this war, uh, fairly sympathetic to the argument, um, you know, of sort of Western hubris after the end of the Cold War and, you know, not taking uh, seriously what Russia's uh, security concerns might be and that, yes, you know, maybe there was a sort of overly hasty enlargement of, uh, uh, of NATO and perhaps even of the European Union. So I, I had um, in, you know, sort of full kind of disclosure, I had some sort of sympathy for, for that view. I have totally changed my mind about this um, because, you know, sort of following through what I was saying earlier, I have now asked myself, well, firstly, um, is this not the, the wrong question to ask? You know, I mean, it's not NATO that enlarged, but it was countries that wanted to enter NATO and countries that wanted to enter the European Union, maybe because they knew the Kremlin a little bit better than I did. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, so there is a reason why they wanted to enter. And hey, Ukraine proves, in a sense, that they were right in wanting to enter. Uh, because, you know, for the sake of argument, if um, Ukraine was a member of NATO now, would we be seeing this invasion? 
And if surely everyone agrees that what we're seeing is, you know, absolutely dreadful and could, for the reasons that we started this conversation with, end up in a third world war, um, well, you know, one has to take the argument of was it a mistake to stop NATO enlargement rather than uh, to engage in it, I think, very, very seriously. So that's one piece of my answer. The other piece of my answer is what I find, which is connected, which is what I find really problematic uh, about, you know, this kind of, you know, the geopolitical, the realist kind of understanding of of all this is that it, well, firstly, it doesn't take agency very seriously. Uh, It doesn't take the agency of these countries seriously. So there's some sort of assumption that, um, you know, this is really up to the West and Russia to kind of, you know, figure out. And, you know, who cares who's there in between? So beyond the kind of, eth- you know, the fact that I find it from an ethical point of view, very problematic. But I also find it very politically problematic because the assumption is that these people and, you know, when we're talking about Ukraine, we're talking about, you know, over 40 million people. So it's not exactly, you know, um, you know small countries. It's not Moldova. Um, it's not Moldova. It's not Georgia. <laughs> so, you know, the assumption is that these countries are simply going to stay put, which I think is, you know, it's inconceivable. I mean, especially as we are seeing, you know, beyond the way in which, you know, obviously Ukraine's, Ukrainians have been supported militarily by the West. But when you see those images of, you know, those Ukrainian uh, women trying to sort of stop tanks with their bare arms, well, I mean, this doesn't exactly kind of come across as a country which is going to stay put with a Russian occupation. So I think that even beyond ethics, um, it just doesn't, you know, not taking seriously the agency of these countries and therefore these people is just analytically wrong. Mm. Yes, it does strike me as extremely self-absorbed. It's funny that both sides of politics in the West seem to to want to superimpose uh, their own domestic interpretations of things onto the entire globe. Like, uh, you know, conservatives will often criticize progressives in America for uh, supposedly blaming America for everything. And they feel like they're more patriotic and that America can do no wrong. But then when they come to talking about something like this, it's as if America is controlling everything and is somehow culpable for everything that Vladimir Putin does. And, uh, it, you know, it, it not only deprives the Ukrainians of agency, it almost deprives Putin of agency by making him a puppet of whatever America's misdeeds were in the 1990s. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Let's just think then uh, briefly about an end point to this, because we just sort of touched on best case scenarios. Let's talk about likeliest, I guess, scenarios. Um, can you look... Is there any point in looking five years out, 10 years out? Oh, very difficult. Very difficult. Um, I guess five years out or 10 years out, um, I cannot see uh, Vladimir Putin in power. Uh, so I guess that's one piece of <laughs> good news. Exactly what's going to happen between now and then, I have no idea. Um, but I can't I can't see that. Um, having said that, I um, can see a scenario whereby... Um, we we need to sort of stay the course. And so up until then, I think sanctions will remain in place. I, I think that this sort of, you know, energy independence that uh, the EU is building uh, will proceed. So I think if, in a number of ways, the die has been cast. 
Um, and then, you know, the sort of the, the best case scenario, and, and, when, and that, that die being cast also uh, entails Ukraine gradually integrating into the European Union. Um, and, and I guess the best case scenario in all of this is, you know, what do we do when eventually the political conditions in Russia arise whereby we will be in a position to rebuild uh, that relationship? Um, and, you know, sort of how to, in a sense, be clear-eyed about it, uh, not be hubristic, uh, perhaps, about it, um, but, you know, but, but engage in the reconstruction of that, that relationship. You know, I think that, that point will come at some, you know, some point. Uh, and indeed, you know, it could be in, in one, two, five or ten years. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, it, I think, you know, sort of the EU and, and, and Russia will always share the same continent. Uh, so th- that question sooner or later will, I think, arise. If what Putin wants is a neutral Ukraine, a demilitarized Ukraine, an end to sanctions and for Eastern Ukraine to either be part of Russia or be independent states um, or autonomous, I can see some of those. I wonder whether or not sanctions are a deal breaker, whether or not for Putin it would just be beyond the pale for him to withdraw unless there's a guarantee that sanctions get removed. And for the West, it's inconceivable that you would allow him to get away with what he's done without enduring sanctions. Is there a way out of that? Well, you know, I I think that, you know, if we imagine a deal that looks like uh, neutrality, uh, I I, I think that it's important to highlight that neutrality means that uh, neutrality and demilitarization are uh, impossible together. So, you know, when we talk about neutrality and we talk about whatever, Austria or Finland, well, these are countries that precisely because they are neutral, they have, you know, fairly strong armed forces. Um, So, you know, I think that when Putin talks about neutrality and demilitarization together, he's basically talking about Ukrainian surrender. So that is inconceivable. Uh, you can, though, conceive of a solution which sees uh, neutrality plus security guarantees um, plus EU membership, um, perhaps even with, you know, Crimea. Uh, you know, I'm not sure it would be a full-on recognition of Crimea, but let's say Crimea something. Um, and, uh, you know, Donetsk and Lugansk, in a sense, kind of, you know, almost park that question. I can't imagine it being resolved anytime soon. Um, And Russian withdrawal, uh, you know, sort of back to the lines of of, of the 24th of of February. So that is a conceivable, uh, quote unquote, peace that would come along with the lifting of sanctions. I guess what I'm saying is that that solution is an utter defeat for Putin. Uh, and that is why I struggle to see it, um, right. Right. which is why I'm so worried. Could you, I've been wondering, could you have a demilitarized zone in eastern Ukraine? Could you have a, a guarantee of Ukrainian neutrality? Uh, obviously, as you say, you can't have neutrality if you don't have an army because uh, then Russia can take you over whenever it wants to and you have no ability to defend yourself. So, But if you, is there a, is there a, a deal that says, okay, Ukraine doesn't have 
Crimea anymore. It doesn't have its eastern states anymore. It's neutral, and it's going to have a huge military west of Kiev. But if you draw a line down the country from Kiev down to Crimea along whatever that river is, whose name escapes me, we're not going to have any military. That's right. We're not going to have any military east of that or something. Yeah, I think I think absolutely. So long as uh, this also means that there won't be Russian troops there either. Yes. Uh, so it's it's a full demilitarization of the east. Absolutely. I mean, you know, let let's also um, remind ourselves that in a sense, this was what the Minsk Agreement uh, was was expected to deliver. And, and what was that, reason, Natalie? Remind us what the Minsk Agreement well, was. The, the Minsk Agreement, which was essentially brokered um, after uh, the the 2014 war, so it was brokered in 2015 uh, between you know Russia, Ukraine, France, and Germany, uh, essentially had two main pillars to it, and one was um, the you know with OSCE monitoring uh, the withdrawal of, of Russian forces. Uh, and on the other hand, or as a flip side to that, um, you know, forms of autonomy uh, for Donetsk and, and Lugansk. And the reason why that agreement was never implemented is that it got stuck into a sort of chicken and egg uh, situation, uh, whereby um, the Ukrainians were not going to deliver on uh, autonomy uh, so long as Russian forces were, were there, because ultimately delivering on autonomy with Russian forces there um, you know, essentially amounted to Donetsk and Lugansk being some sort of fifth column, basically, yeah. within the Ukrainian state. Um, and and Russian forces did not withdraw because the autonomy was not there. So it just kind of got stuck. And, and maybe because the sequencing within the Minsk agreement was never actually defined, perhaps it got stuck because it was simply unimplementable uh, because yeah. of this, you know, the, 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 this connection between the two. Um, but so, so in a sense, though, underpinning that agreement is precisely the logic that we're talking about. Um, now, the fact that that agreement was not implemented between 2015 and now 2022, when basically Russia uh, sort of killed uh, the, the Minsk format and the Minsk agreement, I think, you know, still raises the question of, you know, even if we park the Donbass question, uh, is it easily resolvable? Um, I'm not quite sure. Um, but But I think that there is an element to that agreement, which, which goes back to this demilitarization point, which is still very permanent today, which is um, precisely what you say, you know, any kind of agreement presumably would not see anyone's forces uh, in that region. I wonder, I'm th I've been thinking lately about enabling Putin to save face whilst losing. Um, so we don't end up in one of those two horror scenarios that you articulated at the beginning of our conversation. Um, and I was thinking back to the, the Cuban Missile Crisis where JFK didn't give uh, the Soviet Union any, uh, any outward or public way of, um, of, of, of saving face, but behind the scenes agreed substantively to remove American nukes from Turkey. Um, is there anything behind the scenes that's conceivable? And is if there were, would there be any way of even sort of communicating it to Putin? How are we communicating with him at, at the moment? Do we have interlocutors and are there open channels of communication? And is there anything that he would want that we could give him that wouldn't 
uh, sort of corrode or undermine the scale of his loss in Ukraine? Well, that's really the million dollar question. I mean, yes, you know, obviously the communication lines are there. Um, You know, in particular, French President Macron has been really sort of front and center of this. Um, But but also, you know, this is really the role that, you know, countries like Turkey or even Israel are trying to to play. Um, I guess in, you know, if, uh, if, if Putin can somehow turn this around uh, within his regime. Uh, I'm I'm kind of less worried about public opinion because I think he can kind of literally get away with murder. Um, But if he can somehow sort of transform this uh, within Russia itself as something along the lines of, yes, actually, no, it was not really about um, ideology and it was not really about, you know, the Ukrainian people, but it was all about security. Uh, well, yes, you know, then it's kind of conceivable that this kind of neutrality plus security guarantees plus EU membership um, plus, you know, Crimea plus kind of, you know, parking uh, Donbass, um, maybe, you know, that, that is the only conceivable face-saving, face-saving uh, solution that one can imagine. Now, can I, can I... Uh, you know, is it possible for him to turn around something that so very blatantly uh, was driven by something else? Um, you know, by you know the the, the very term denazification. I mean, you know, can he really turn this around? Uh, and rather than its real interpretation, which was essentially a decapitation uh, of the Ukrainian uh, government, and not just the government, but basically an entire political system, which heeds to an idea of a civic nation, a nation that kind of strives to live in a sort of free and democratic country. Can he somehow somehow transform this notion of denazification into, well, you know, it's just about some extremist groups within the Ukrainian armed forces? Well, if he can pull it off, well, okay, that would that would be great, mm. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm not quite sure that is likely. Mm. All right, uh, it's a muddle, Natalie. Thank you for walking us through it. It's wonderful to get your insights. It's been great talking to you. Uncomfortable conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.